following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Mark chapter 9, we're going to be reading verses 30 to 37, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. So if you will, please look at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray. Father, we do come now and we ask your blessing on this time in your word We ask you to open our eyes and hearts to see and understand. We ask that your spirit will be moving amongst us, convicting us, drawing attention to the areas in our lives where we struggle with the very thing that the disciples are struggling with here. Um, It is so easy for us to put our thoughts of what your kingdom should look like onto the world around us, even onto the church and relationships that we pursue, and Father, we are constantly reminded of how different your thoughts are from ours. And so I just pray this morning that that would be revealed again, and that as we work through both the text today and over the next several weeks as we continue this new portion here in in the section we're at in Mark's gospel, that you will just make those things abundantly clear to us. Give us your eyes and give us your heart to see and love in the ways that you see and love so that Cornerstone in our lives individually as families will will reflect what it truly looks like in your kingdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I I think I've mentioned this to you before, um, but I, uh, I have a problem with remembering what I've said, um, particularly since I say so much uh, publicly. Sometimes people will come up to me along the way and say, hey, remember a sermon you preached like three years ago and you said this? And my response is pretty much always, I don't remember what I said to you last Sunday, much less what I said three years ago. And so one of the things I find myself regularly doing is searching my sermon archive, database, whatever you call it, to try to figure out what I've said in the past. So I don't repeat the same stories and sayings to you, unless, of course, I want to repeat them. And so if I repeat them, just always assume it's on purpose, all right? But, but regardless, I, I, I do that quite a bit to protect myself because I do forget so much of what I said. And this week I was looking to see if I'd ever made this statement before to you, and I can find no record of it. So I think this is brand new. However, if I'm wrong and I've said it before, please forgive me. Um, I'm going to go on record this morning with saying something that I mean uh, with all sincerity. It's a rant, uh, if you'll allow it, for a few moments here. And I'm not trying to be funny, nor am I trying to get your attention. I'm just telling you honestly what I think about something. Here it is. I don't really like being a pastor. 
Um, and again, I'm not trying to be funny or get your attention. I really don't like it. Now, I like pastoring. I like everything that the New Testament calls a pastor to do, such as teaching and caring and guiding and shepherding and leading and loving. And I love all of those things. I just don't like being a pastor. And I know that's probably not fair. I probably can't really divide those thoughts out like I do in my mind, but, but that's how I feel. And I know I've said that to people in the past privately, but, but now I'm saying it publicly. And, and the reason I don't like it really falls along two lines. Number one, when you're a pastor, you're treated differently, particularly by people that don't know you. I, whenever I meet someone new, I don't care if it's here on a Sunday morning uh, or if it's out and about wherever in our neighborhood and store, I do my best to not tell them what I do for a living. I avoid it at, if at all, not because I'm embarrassed by it, but as soon as they say, so what do you do for a living? And I say, I'm a pastor. A wall pops up from the floor between me and them. We can be having a completely normal conversation. They're like, oh, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry for what I said a moment ago. <laughs> you laugh. It's not funny. I can't tell you how many times people have apologized to me for things that they've said or things that they were talking about. And they want us now start talking about spiritual, religious things that don't have any real context of what we're talking about in the conversation. I mean, it's ridiculous that what stuff that goes on. And by and large, as soon as that's out, they try to get away from me as quickly as possible, okay? Which, considering how much I like people, is probably a good thing. But no, I, you know, I really, I can't stand that. It just, it bugs me to death to have that kind of thing happen. Now, I know all of you are going to, like, mess with me around that uh, point, but I, I've honestly, this is not a lie either, a joke or anything, I have uh, honestly thought about getting a part-time job at Home Depot just so I could tell people I work at Home Depot and just go from there and then just pretend the other part doesn't, doesn't matter. So I hate getting treated differently. That's one reason. But the, but the bigger reason for me that I really don't like being a pastor is because as soon as you tell people that you are a pastor, you are instantly lumped in with a whole bunch of people that I would rather not be lumped in with, and that is other pastors. Uh, when, yeah, I know. I don't really like other pastors. I'm, I'm, I'm being honest. When we first came here in 07, I somehow started getting invited to these pastors' gatherings that would occur around the area, like a region or this place or that place, breakfasts and things like that. And I went to a few of them. And after, I think, like the second one, I was trying to remember this week how many of these I went to uh, in those early days. After the second or third one, I decided I wasn't ever going to those things again. Because most of the guys I felt like I met at these events were pompous and proud and overly focused on status and success and, and just generally not the kind of people that I wanted to be around uh, the more I have hung out with pastors over the past uh, nearly eight years now, the less I have come to like them. Now, this is a, that's a generalization. There have been some guys that I have really, really enjoyed uh, uh, meeting, and there's some great guys out there who are humble and kind and not full of themselves, too. So I'm, I'm speaking very broadly, but, but I just feel like most of the guys I met back then and even a lot of the guys I meet today were like that. In fact, uh, about a year ago, <laughs> Jamie and I were thinking about uh, schooling our kids for this year. If you don't know, we, we homeschool our children, which we're like the worst homeschool family you've ever met in the world because we're like totally not committed to homeschooling. We just kind of do it. I don't know why. Our, our joke is like we're committed to homeschooling through the end of each business day, and we, re, we reassess at that point. So uh, we were reassessing last year again, and uh, we uh, were looking at some different options, and I kept driving by this one Christian school somewhere uh, that was associated with a church, 
And I decided on a whim I was just going to stop in, just see what, see what was going on. So I go in, go up to the office. I'm like, hey, Stacy Potts, I'm just looking at school, trying to get some information on the school. Oh, okay, great. Well, hold on a second. We're going to get Pastor so-and-so up here. Pastor Joe, we'll call him. He's going to come up, and he'll show you around. Okay, fine. So he walks up, and he's like your classic pastor guy. Like, I'm not, I'm like in jeans and, or like shorts and a car, you know, cargo shorts and a t-shirt and sandals, and he's like tie and all this stuff. So he walks up and he's like, oh, hey, brother, let's come on, I'll show you around. So we start walking around the school and he's pointing out this and pointing out that. And about halfway through this, a, a woman walks out of a, a, a room. She's like, oh, hi, Pastor Joe, whatever name, his name was. Hi, Susie, and go on. It's his wife. It turns out to be his wife and she refers to him as Pastor So-and-so. I'm like, okay. So so we keep going, and he finally says, so what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor? What are you, where are you the pastor of? And I tell him where I'm pastor at, and he's like, oh, we'll take care of you. Us pastors have got to stick together. And I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> I left. Our kids are still homeschooled. Uh, people, people pander to this kind of mentality. That's, that's why this happens. They let pastors get away with that kind of mindset, and worse, they encourage it. And I can't tell you how many times I have gone, I'm ranting still, I can't tell you how many times I have gone to Christian events where at some point in the program, somebody up front will say, can we have all the pastors in the room stand up so we can give them a round of applause? And I'm like, why? We're just sitting in chairs like everyone else in the room. Like, I don't understand why they do that. And so I refuse. It aggravates me. Look, I'm not trying to be judgmental, though I clearly know I am being that. Um, I get it. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. It just seems to me that there are a lot of pastors in this world who very much enjoy all of those things and, and want that, uh, that recognition and they want to be first and great and all that stuff. And I'm probably including that more than I know. And, and that's the same thing that the disciples are struggling with here in Mark. We, we had to take a, a week off for Easter, and so let's quickly reset our minds as to where we are here in Mark. I'll give you the outline of the book as a whole that we've, where we're at. Mark has been presenting Jesus along these three lines. First, the Son of God. Second, as King. And now, thirdly, as the Messiah, as the Christ. And this third section has been broken up into three subsections, each one kind of have a di having a different focus. And we're in the middle of those three subsections right now, and I'll zoom in on that one and show you another outline, just kind of breaking down where we're at at this particular moment. This subsection, recall, is, is bookended by stories of blindness, and in between these stories of blindness, you find a whole lot of blindness specifically related to the disciples' understanding of who Jesus is as the Messiah and of what that means even to call him the Messiah. It all began when he asked the question, who am I? And they said correctly, you are the Christ. They got the right answer. They just don't mean the same thing that Jesus means by that. They think that this means glory and power and greatness and authority now, key word, now, both for Jesus and for themselves as his followers. And so Mark has been showing this blindness to us by walking through what I'm, I'm calling these three failure cycles it's three foretellings of Jesus' death, followed by three immediate failures on the part of the disciples to understand, followed by three periods of teaching and correction, each related to that. And so we just finished the first failure cycle the week before Easter. In failure cycle one, Jesus foretold his death back in chapter 8, verse 31. Hey, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, I'm going to die. 
Peter instantly then fails. He comes along and he pulls Jesus to the side and he rebukes him for saying such things. Don't you know you're the conquering king? Don't you know you can't suffer, you can't die? You're, you're destined for glory and power, not suffering and weakness. And so Jesus has to confront that through some teaching and some stories that are, are put together here by Mark that are designed to show both the disciples and us that for Jesus, glory will come through suffering. Power will come through weakness. And the same is going to apply to us. Those same paradoxical concepts, the thing that the disciples just couldn't get their minds wrapped around, are true for all of us who want to live our lives in this kingdom that Jesus is bringing. Glory comes to those of us who embrace suffering. Power comes to those who are willing to confess and embrace their weakness. You remember all of that? Okay, Spell your cycle one. Well, today we're beginning failure cycle two, and guess what? It's going to work exactly the same way. It's going to be a confession, failure, and then a series of teaching and stories that are designed to highlight or correct, I should say, the failure that we'll see this morning. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the second foretelling and the second failure, and then Jesus' immediate response. And then over the next few weeks, We'll work through the rest of this cycle trying to understand all of the things that Jesus wants us to see to understand what life in his kingdom is really going to look like. So today, let's look at foretelling and failure. Start with the second foretelling here in chapter 9, verse 30. And again, it is very, very, very simple and clear. All three of the foretellings are going to be like this. Mark writes that they went on from there, that place where they had been, the nine had been, uh, when they couldn't cast the demon out of the uh, man's son. They go on from there, and they pass through Galilee, and he doesn't want anyone to know. Why? Because he's teaching his disciples, saying to them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill him, and when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, Mark writes, and they were afraid to ask him. Now remember, where is he on his way to? Each story here is bringing us one step closer to what city? Jerusalem, where he's going to die. And as you can see here in the text, he's trying to keep a low profile as he goes so that he can have extra time with his disciples. He's not really focused on the crowds anymore. You're going to see him interact with people here and there. But he's really seemingly trying to stay away from some of those components that used to be a big part of his ministry so that he can have extra time now with these 12 men. And the thing that he's teaching them here is that he's going to be delivered into the hands of men be killed, and then rise three days later. And just so you don't miss this, let me point out that the only really new piece of information in this particular foretelling is that he's going to be handed over or delivered, as Mark writes it here. This is Jesus' way, uh, Jesus's way of referring to his betrayal, if you're curious. He's going to be delivered. He's going to be betrayed into the hands of men. So he's not going to just be taken randomly as if he's like Liam Neeson's daughter kind of thing. Like, it's not taken, nor is he willingly turning himself in. No, he, he's, he's going to be delivered. Someone is going to betray him to these authorities who are going to then kill him, and then three days later he'll rise again. So that's, that's the foretelling. It's super clear, super simple. It always will be each time. The only other thing here that Mark adds is this note in verse 32 that the disciples didn't understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And all I'll say here is I don't think that you should read this as them being afraid to ask him a question. As if somehow now they're afraid of Jesus. Like, we can't ask him that. He'll get angry. Because all throughout the Gospels, all throughout Mark, they've been asking him tons of questions. In fact, what was the very last thing that happened in the, the scene before this? 
They ask him a question, right? And in the house, why couldn't we cast out the demon? So it's not that they're afraid to ask Jesus questions. If I had to guess, just kind of getting a sense of the, of the story and how it's, it's developing, I would read it as they're kind of afraid of the answer, if that makes sense. They don't understand, and they're afraid to ask. <laughs> they don't, I don't know that they really want to know the real answer is, but, but that's it, and that's, that's the foretelling. It's really simple. Now look at the second failure. And remember, this is important because whatever is happening in the failure is going to give us a way of understanding everything that comes after the failure, all the way up to the, the third foretelling, okay? It's going gonna, it's gonna to guide us through the rest of this section, and so we need to get this very, very clearly. Mark writes that when they came to Capernaum, and it's been a long time, class, since we talked about Capernaum, right? I mean, it's since the beginning of Mark when we spent a little time on that. So if you weren't here at the beginning of Mark, I'll just put this up to remind you. Capernaum is a small town. It's a trading town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And this was Jesus' home base during the majority of his earthly ministry. This is where he lived and operated and moved out from, most likely Peter and Andrew. I always want to say Peter and Simon, but that's the same person. Peter and Andrew lived there. James and John most likely lived there. They had a fishing business together out of this town. And so this is like the home base. And to my knowledge, this is the last time that we're going to see Jesus here in Capernaum. So, so he writes that when they came to Capernaum and were in the house, I assume Peter's house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Now, as we like to do in Mark, let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes for a moment, okay? So you now you all are the disciples. It's not 12 now, it's whatever number's in this room. So we're the disciples, and we're walking behind Jesus, and we just heard him say to us, listen, I'm going to be betrayed, delivered into the hands of men, and I am going to be killed, and three days later, I'm going to rise again. What do you think our topic of conversation might possibly be? Yeah, well, that's, see, you're, you're focused on yourself. What's wrong with that? No, I'm kidding. Um, I would be thinking, if it was me, I'd go, well, who's going to do it? Is it going to be one of us? Is it going to be one of the Pharisees? Is one of the, the Romans? Who, who's going to do it? How and when is it going to happen? Is it going to be in Jerusalem before we get there? Is it going to be like a intrigue and stuff around it, I would be all about trying to figure out the what's going to happen part. Clearly, we are not the disciples because Jesus, when he asked the question, Mark tells us that they kept silent because on the way they had not been talking about any of those things. Rather, they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. I I try to avoid, I don't know why, it's just kind of a, a thing for me. I try to avoid like focusing on the Greek words and concepts behind a lot of what we read in English, at least publicly in my preaching. I think it, I don't know that it always is helpful as some people like to make it, but for some reason lately it's been really helpful and so I keep coming back to this. You need to know the Greek word for greatest here. It's a word you already know, you, you know it well, you've used it probably thousands of times in your life and didn't even really think about it. It's the Greek word megas. M-E-G-A-S. What English word do we get from that? Mega. Uh, if you like Power Rangers, you may play with Megazoid. If you are a Detroit Lions fan, you may cheer for Megatron. Okay, 
mega. It, it's, it has to do with, with someone who is the greatest. And, and this is important to understand their argument correctly because they're not simply uh, discussing which of them will be great. As if greatness is something that multiple of them could have achieved. No, the, the argument about which of them is actually the megas, the greatest of them all. Who is going to be first? Who is going to be in charge? Who's going to wield the most power and influence? Who will be the boss, the one who will crack the whip and hold the reins and pull the strings and run the show and be the big cheese and the big shot and the big enchilada and the big fish and the big gun and the big wig? The megas. Okay, do you get it? This is not just what they're talking about either, mind you. This is what they are arguing about. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm. I mean, and I just picture this story, and it's, it's laughable because here's Jesus walking along. Guys, I'm going to be delivered over, and I'm going to be killed, and three days later I'm going to rise again. And they're like, okay, but I'm going to be the best. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's baffling. Jesus is talking about his death, and they are engaged in an argument about which of them is the most important. And yet, and yet when Jesus asks them, asks them to tell him what they were arguing about, they're embarrassed. They, they, I mean, I picture them like children who've been caught doing something they shouldn't do. Parents, you know this look, right? You walk in the room, they're like, if we don't talk, nothing will be known. Uh, they kept silent. They don't, they don't want to answer. They don't want to get in trouble. It, clearly, though, Jesus knows what they're talking about. And so he responds. He sat down and he called the 12 to him and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now, I want you to think about this statement because this really is the beginning of his teaching and correction in relation to this failure, okay? So the failure is one of them wants to be the megas, the, the greatest of them all. This is, this is now going to set the tone for everything else we see between here and, and the third foretelling. They are under the impression, apparently, that greatness in the kingdom of God is shown by one's superiority or rank, okay? Which makes sense because that's how the world thinks about it, Right? In the world's way of thinking, the higher up you are, the latter, the, the greater you are. And the greater you are, the more important you are. So, so for us, rank means everything. The admiral is, he's the greatest. Everybody else is on a chain somewhere beneath him. And so, and so superiority and greatness, it's all built on this system. But with this one statement, Jesus destroys that way of thinking in relation to the kingdom of God. He says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And in a sense, he doesn't really chide them for wanting to be great. He just redefines what that means in God's kingdom. He sets them straight in the way in which greatness is achieved. He tells them that greatness in his kingdom is achieved through leastness, if I can coin a new word for us. It's achieved through leastness. And just look at the two conditions he gives. He says, if you want to be first... You must be last of all. And note that he's emphasizing the word last. It's not just last generally. No, no, no. You have to be the last of everyone. The person who is the lowest of the low in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, that person's the greatest. In other words, it's not the people with their names and lights who will be greatly honored by God in the end. 
It's not the guys who write the books and are on TV and have the mega churches and ministries and so on. It's going to be the people we never heard of. Those are going to be the people who in God's kingdom will end up being the greatest. And I've come to believe that with all my heart. It's going to be men and women who died in obscurity, whose names have been forgotten to history and who probably were never even known while they were living. These will be the people in the end who will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, Jesus says, you've got to be the last of all. Secondly, if you want to be first, you have to be the servant of all. I mean, it's not just enough to be last or lowest on the scale. You, you have to be a servant as well. And for the disciples, if you were hearing this with their ears, this would have, this would have been a, a tough pill to swallow because a servant, particularly in the first century Roman world, was, was nothing. No rights, no privileges, no voice, no status. A servant was basically just the property of his master and nothing more. And Jesus says that in order to be great in God's kingdom, this is what you have to become. But note again the words of all. I mean, at least a servant in a, in a house is only serving one guy, right? He's, the, he's got the master to serve, and that's pretty much it. Jesus says that in, in his, this kingdom here, you've got to be the servant of, of everyone, that there is no one you're over. You're under everybody. Again, you, you just get this idea that these are the lowest of the low. <laughs> this isn't at all what the disciples wanted to hear. They're arguing about who was the megas, the most important, the greatest, the, the top dog. And with one response, Jesus turns their thinking upside down. But, but he wants to drive the point home even more. And so similarly to what he did uh, in the first failure cycle with the transfiguration, where he didn't just teach them something, he also showed it to them. He does that again here. Mark writes that he took a child and he put them, uh, the child in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Why is he doing this? And, and what exactly is he doing here? Well, this is a, a, an object lesson of sorts. And so in order to understand it, we have to understand the first century Jewish-Roman uh, view of children, which is very different than the American view of children. In America... We live in a child-centric society. Children are like the most important thing in the world, and parents live their lives around them. Free nugget of wisdom. That's stupid. And we should not live that way. And if you live that way with your life built around your children, stop it. Um, back to this. I said a moment ago that in Jesus' day, a servant was nothing, that they had no rights, no privileges, no voice, no status. And yet... They are not the lowest of the low in that society. They're just not. You see, children were the lowest of the low in this society. Ch children are less than nothing in terms of their standing within the culture. And you get a sense of this in Galatians chapter 4. In Galatians chapter 4, we, we looked at this actually last Sunday, um, but I'm not going to even focus on the same verses. Paul is building an argument where he's trying to explain certain things to the Galatians about faith and, and, and what the gospel is and how it works. So he's trying to explain this. And in doing so, he uses an illustration that will help you understand the first century view of children. He, he writes this, that he goes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. What, 
What is this illustrating? He, he's making the point that, listen, if you are the uh, ma- oldest male child of a, of a master, okay, of, a, of a, a citizen, a landowner, you're the owner of everything. I mean, you might be six years old, but everything that you see, the ground you walk on, the buildings you live in, the fields that the servants work and the servants who work them, they're all going to be yours someday. You're the owner of everything. However, as long as you're a child, know what he says there. He's no different than a slave. In fact, he says in the next verse that often what would happen is that fathers would take their children and would put them underneath of guardians and managers. These are just other slaves and servants who work for him. And these people have been entrusted now to teach the child everything there is to know about running the estate. So teach them what it means to work the fields. Teach them what it means to take care of the the, the animals and of the the buildings. Teach them how to go to the marketplace and handle the money. Teach them to read and write. Teach them everything. And so this child, even though he's the owner of all, he is of less rank than the slaves who have been put over him to teach him. That's this is the illustration. That just gives you a, a picture of how children are viewed in this culture. They're, they're nothing. They're less than slaves. And yet Jesus sets this child in the midst of the 12 disciples. And he takes this child into his arms and he says to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not him who sent me. In, in this act, Jesus is embracing literally the lowest of the low. I know that's hard for us to get our minds around because we just don't think like this. But for the 12 disciples sitting there looking at this scene unfold, they would have understood the significance of what was happening. Jesus is literally embracing the lowest of the low, the person who has no rights and who is completely helpless, and he's telling his disciples to do the same. He talks here about receiving one such child in my name. And I don't think he's specifically talking about children because he's going to do that in in chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. I think here he's just simply using the child as an example of anyone and everyone who is ignored, rejected, and devalued by the society around them. And note that he's talking to the disciples about this. They are the ones who are supposed to be receiving these kinds of people. They're the ones who are being challenged to accept them and welcome them and embrace them. In other words, not only are they supposed to be the last of all and the servant of all in God's kingdom, they're also expected to receive and welcome all of the others in this world who are last and servant and devalued and insignificant and nothing as well. And if they do this, Jesus makes them a promise, and it's a beautiful one. If you receive and accept them, it's as if you're receiving and accepting me. And if you're receiving and accepting me, you're actually receiving and accepting the one who sent me, God himself. And I love this because Jesus is here identifying himself with the the lowest. He's not coming saying, look, if you accept the king, if if you're loyal to Caesar, it's like being loyal to me. He doesn't associate himself with the high. He associates himself with the lowly. He's saying that God desires the poor and the needy and the, and the broken and the forgotten and the hurting and the ignored. And he loves the slave and the servant. He values those who are devalued by everyone else. Man, life in this kingdom doesn't look anything like what the disciples are expecting, does it? They're, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest among them. And Jesus has a very different view. Folks, I, I fear that whether we realize it or not, there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, let me just focus on us, a lot of Christians in this world who are struggling with the exact same mentality. 
Um, I mean, let's just talk about this as a, as a church here for a moment with three questions. Number one, do we desire greatness here at Cornerstone? And if so, what kind of greatness exactly do we desire? Because for churches, it seems to me, as I have talked to a lot of different pastors and been involved with a lot of different churches along the way, it seems that oftentimes they define greatness by one or all of these three factors, size, money, influence. These are the three things that are often used to, to define greatness in a church. And so the bigger, the better, right? The more people who can come and the bigger we can build our buildings and the, the, the more and bigger programs we can have and you name it, all that stuff, the bigger is better. Number two, more money, the better, right? So the bigger our budgets, the more stuff we can spend that money on and do, and that would be great, and we can have big bank accounts and da-da-da-da-da. Number three, the more influential, the better. Um, it, <clears throat> this is like a big one for me personally and part of why I was saying up front that I don't really like pastors because like when I talk to guys a lot of times, not all, again, there are some really great guys out there, when I meet a pastor for the first time, I hate it when they say, so how big is your church? Like, what does it matter? <laughs> and they're, they're interested in their spheres of influence and who they know and what they do and what boards they're on and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you look at it. People go with this. They, they really do go with it. you got a guy who's on the radio, who's on television, he's writing books, he's speaking at conferences. Their churches are huge because people want to be associated with, with the, what they see as success and greatness, and that's the way that a lot of people judge that. Well, then, if that is all wrong, if we see that, that that is not what it should be, the question then is, from Jesus' perspective, how can we as a church be the last of all and the servant of all? And I was thinking about that a lot, both this week and really over the sabbatical. I was like, how can we, how can Cornerstone be countercultural in terms of how this world views greatness? And so what about this one? What about the smaller the better? I mean, why don't we pursue that as a good philosophy here at Cornerstone? Now, I'm going to say something, and it would be interesting if I could know your hearts when I say it. I can't, so you're all safe. Last Sunday, biggest Sunday ever, Cornerstone. We had almost 280 people. It was two services. And we're all like, wow, that's great. Yeah. No, it's not. I walked out of last Sunday, and I've been thinking about it all week long, about how that played out, and I was like, this is, a, this is not good. It's not good to be, to be growing that large, because when you begin to do that, one, your pride gets into play, and you're like, oh, look at all we're doing, look how successful we are, and, and all of a sudden, your heart is kind of built into some sense of like identity with that, and that's not good for us. And number two, it's not good because it's actually working against what we say our purpose is, and that is to work with all the energy that God gives us to present everyone perfect in Jesus. The more people that show up in this room, the harder it is to do that with any real planning, intentionality, and effort because people slip through the cracks. Then it's easier just to be a face sitting in a, in a pew somewhere, a seat somewhere that can slip out real quick before the end of the service and no one see you, know you, or catch you. It's easy to come from months on end and never to be involved in a community group or have anyone get to know you because half the people around you don't know half the people in the room anyway. I don't think it's a good thing to get as big as you can. I think we need to take a different approach to be smaller because I think that in God's kingdom, going countercultural will probably always pan out right. How about this one? The more sacrificial, the better. As opposed to the more money, the better. What if we could work it out so that we could be as sacrificial as possible? 
We're not trying to build our coffers. Yeah, I know we've got to pursue wisdom in, in doing this and that. I, I get it. But, but I would rather be a part of a church that spent itself out serving others rather than trying to build up its own self. How about the less known, the better? That's a big one and has been a big one for me over the last few months as I have continually come back to you and said, we cannot be known. Not that that's, we're in danger of that right now, but I'm just letting you know, we can't be. Cornerstone cannot be known. The day that Cornerstone is known, that people focus on the name of Cornerstone, we have failed as a church because there's only one name here that matters, and that's Jesus' name. And so we can't ever let ourselves fall into a mentality or a trap that somehow the name of Cornerstone matters or any person matters. The less known we are, the better. That's how we can pursue, at least, at least, if not more ways. That is how we can pursue being last of all and servant of all. And the third question I had written down here was, are we the type of church that doesn't just welcome, rather pursues the devalued around us? We pursue the devalued around us. In other words, who is our preferred target member slash attendee? Whether that's on a Sunday morning or in your community group. If they are young, white, middle class with a nice house and a good job, we've got a problem. We've got a problem. Because then what we're doing is trying to pursue people who look like us and who have their lives all together and they, you know, we're trying to pursue what we consider to be the best. I'm telling you, Jesus came after tax collectors and fishermen. He came after working class, blue collar people who were poor and needy and had problems and that's who Jesus pursued. Not the people who have it all together. The people who have it all together, folks, they don't need us. They don't need us, and they don't need Jesus, and they don't need this gospel that we, pre we preach. Jesus came for the least of these. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul tells us that God doesn't call many noble. He doesn't call many wise. He doesn't call many who are mighty. He calls people who are weak and who are foolish and who are nothings in this world in order to put to shame all the others. And so are we looking for the weak around us? Are we looking for the foolish? Are we looking for the people who are nothing? Cornerstone should be a microcosm. And we, we, don't, we don't have complete control over this. I get it. But, but there's a real sense in which Cornerstone should be a microcosm of what God's kingdom is going to look like someday. People of every tribe and nation and tongue, people who are weak and foolish and, and nothings gather together worshiping and proclaiming and exalting the name of Jesus. And my question is, if, we, if, if we're not there right now, what do we need to do to get there? And I could talk about this personally as well. How are you pursuing greatness? Are you focused on the wrong things? But it would be all the same questions and all the same answers. Folks, this is where we're going over the next few weeks. The, the disciples have a wrong view of greatness in God's plan. They think that because Jesus is the Messiah and because they're his followers, it's going to mean a, a ladder, a hierarchy, a power structure in which they're going to operate. And they're going to be the greatest. And blah, blah, blah. No. No. Jesus' plan, God's plan for the establishment establishment of his kingdom is completely along opposite lines. He's going to show great care and love in these next few stories. He's going to show great care and love and honor to individuals and groups of people who would have been ignored by the elite of Jesus's day, spiritual elite, political, cultural, whatever. 
And he's going to reject those who would have been honored by those of his day. You're going to watch it play out. He's going to be completely countercultural to what the disciples are expecting when it comes to the issue of greatness. And as we work through these scenes, it is my prayer that God will fillet our hearts, peel them back to show us how much we too have embraced this wrong way of understanding the church, the kingdom of God, and what God is doing in this world. Will you bow your heads in prayer with me? Father, we've come and we've just skimmed the surface of what you're going to show us here. We are like the disciples. We have a wrong view of what greatness in your sight means. It's actually what greatness in our sight means. We want all these things that the world values rather than the things that you value. And we've just been given a taste today of where this is going. And so I pray that as we work through this section in the next few Sundays, that you will give us as a church a heart of humility, of contrition, of recognition of our own faults, of our wrong desires and, and attitudes, and that you will help us to pursue leastness. To, not just to be okay with it, but to want that above everything else, to, to both personally, as families, as a church, to, to strive to be the last of all, to be the servants of all, to be the kind that embrace those who are completely helpless and devalued by society. We spend all our time focusing on the wrong people, I fear. People whose stomachs are full and whose needs are met and feel no no need of you whatsoever. And there is a hurting and broken world around us that sees their need every day and we ignore them because they, they're beneath us or we don't want to get dirty. I, I don't, our hearts are so sinful we don't even realize it. And so Father, please, please reveal that to us and change us, we ask, so that we can be like your son who came to die for the least of these. And we give ourselves for the least as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.